Sarah and I got a cool guest on this episode. We really do. I'm Sarah Abear, and Chris and I produce the All Y'all podcast independently in Shreveport, Louisiana. For the series you're listening to right now, we're delighted to partner with Louisiana Public Broadcasting for five episodes exploring the cultural impact of the Louisiana Hayride, a country music showcase that was broadcast from Shreveport from 1948 until 1960. The Hayride helped launch or redefine the careers of Hank Williams, Elvis Presley, Johnny Cash, and other icons of American music. For this series, we're talking with folks who have unique perspectives on Shreveport's music history. In previous episodes, we've spoken with Louisiana Hayride Archives owner Joey Kent, as well as retired newspaper publisher Robert Gentry. You can find those episodes on our website at www.allyallblog.com. For this episode, we were honored to have the opportunity to sit down with country music superstar and Shreveport native Kix Brooks. As you'll hear from Kix, he grew up in the Shreve Island neighborhood, just a few doors down from Louisiana Hayride star Johnny Horton, and it sounds like a few doors down from where we are right now. On Audubon. So to begin our conversation, Sarah asked Kix what the Louisiana Hayride meant to him and how, if at all, it had shaped his life and career. Gosh, I don't even know where to start. I guess uh, probably, you know, from the time I was four or five years old that I can remember, uh, my mom died when I was like four years old, and we lived down on on Shreve Island. Johnny Horton lived two blocks from us over on Audubon. Yeah, and of course, Billie Jean was married to to Hank before she was married to Johnny. So it was, was his last widow. And she's been, uh, she's been fun to keep up with over the years. We, we had a lot of ties. I found out when we got to Nashville, but as a kid, you know, I grew up hearing Hank Williams songs and especially Johnny Horton songs too, because he was right down the street. I, I remember like it was yesterday, my dad stopping in front of their house and was a wreath on the door. I was probably six years old when he was killed in a car wreck. And I asked him what that was. He said, well, Mr. Horton uh, died last night, you know, in a, in a car wreck. Those memories are all tied me in a real tight way to, to the cornerstone of country music in my mind. And I always thought it was really cool. I always took great pride in Shreveport and, and the Louisiana Hayride, the legacy of it was kind of an outlaw opry. You know, it's like Hank and Cash, even after he kicked out the lights at the... A lot of those guys got thrown off. Elvis, of course, wasn't accepted at all. They just didn't dig him at the Opry a bit. But they loved him in Louisiana, you know? We get it, and it's funny. I've, I've talked with Ronnie Dunn over the years. When we first got together, we didn't know each other from Adam. You know, we met on a Tuesday. We're encouraged by a record company guy who's trying to get a duo put together to write some songs. We wrote our first two number one records the week we met, you know, and took off on this crazy ride that we had both been around a long time. I was 36 years old. He was 38 years old. We'd been playing clubs, and I'd played all over for years. The chances of that happening, you know, and he had this legacy that he was born in Texas, but really came up 
in the Oklahoma area, you know, with um, with Clapton and Leon Russell and all those guys when all that was happening. And I was playing the clubs here. You know, it's funny. I just slowed down coming over the Texas Street Bridge, licking down uh, where Humphreys used to be. I don't know how many nights I played in that place. But it was it was rocking back then, you know. And, and we took a lot, of, a lot of pride in where we came from. But for us... It was really all the all the cool stuff that I was chasing was coming up out of Austin or California. You know, I worked for my dad, had a pipeline construction company here and a pipeline testing company here in, in Shreveport. And uh, and all us truck drivers, you know, had those pointed-toed cowboys boots and had that hair slicked back, those big <laughs> pompadours, and I just thought they were cool as anything. They, they, they were loved cool. <laughs> Haggard and Jones. That's, they didn't want to hear any of that other crap. It's like that was it for them especially Haggard. He was the guy for truck drivers, you know, and tough guys. But they loved Jones, too. And to me, you know, hearing the Eagles and the stuff I was chasing and trying to tune my guitar with the Almond Brothers, you know, we were we were really chasing that, that thing. And even in Austin, some of my first shows here, there was a place called the River City Music Hall that was, God, I bet it, it's probably legit 1,500 to 2,000 people warehouse that they converted into a really cool and everybody played there and i opened for all of them because i could make a lot of noise just banging on a guitar all by myself i was cheap i was 25 bucks and and i was hired <laughs> wow. yeah yeah but everybody that came through and i got to be friends with jerry jeff and and even Dirk kershaw sleep at the wheel nitty-gritty dirt band you know years later I reminded Jeff Hanna of that and wound up having a number one record that I wrote for those guys, you know. So a lot of those ties back there. It's a long answer to a short question you asked, but it always kind of came back to when people talk about the Opry, I'd talk about the Hayride. You know, because our tradition to me was just a little tougher and was a little cooler and was a little swampier. And, you know, we just... We, we were a little outlawish compared to what they were doing. It was just their thing. It was very based on bluegrass and out of the hills and all that. And our stuff was just, it was country, but it rocked a little harder, you know. And I always, I always thought that was cool, and I've always taken great pride in that. Do you feel like Shreveport, quote unquote, like has a sound or that it influenced your sound at all, given all those different influences that were swirling? Or in? obviously night and day. You know, I'd always wonder when I got out of tech, of course, I played around here. Jerry Jeff was one of the first people that I really opened up for more than once and played with when I was at tech and, and whatever. And those guys were crazy. I mean, they were a whole different level of crazy. They all were. And it's I was just, you know, uh, down there with Ray Wiley Hubbard. Gosh, it's just a few months ago. Still just crazy. I mean, they're. There's a handful of guys, they hadn't changed a bit. And I actually wrote a song about Jerry Jeff on one of our Brooks and Dunn records and called him up and asked him if, you know, he'd play on it with me. Of course, I, I sent it to him and it's kind of, you know, it's kind of a mid-tempo sort of song, but it's about him. The, the song, I'll give you just a little background because we're at Tech and I'd never met him before. So I'm, I was kind of scared of him because I was a huge fan and, and he was already notorious for, you know, just ripping this swath of craziness and and hell raising you know everywhere he went 
And he, I'm standing there on, next to the steps on the side of the stage, you know, and, and he comes walking up the steps. Well, you know those, those plastic things that you put a six-pack of beer in? Mm-hmm. He'd run his belt through that, and he had a six-pack hanging off of each hip. And he, he's about to walk up the steps, and he takes a drag and throws this thing on the ground. He walks up on the stage, and he pulls one of those beers off. He chugs the whole thing and throws it down on the stage, and he goes, one, two, three, kicks off his first song. So... That's the first line of the song is Jerry Jeff Walker stumbled to the stage with a Martin guitar and a da 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 and a six pack. And, and uh, anyway, so I sent him the song and said, Hey, Jerry, would you mind, you know, singing on this thing with me? He goes, well, Let me listen to it. <laughs> so he calls me back about five minutes later. He goes, Well, yeah, I'll do it, but you know, it's called the Ballad of Jerry Jeff Walker. And, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's not really a ballad, it's kind of a up tempo. I go, Jerry Jeff, it's like ballad is, that means a story, you know, it's not, it doesn't have to be, the tempo doesn't have to be, which, and anyway, he goes, he goes, you know, and it's, it's really a three, four, you know, it's, it's not, and you're counting it off like a one, two, three, four, but it's, it's are you going to sing on this thing or not? So anyway, but sure enough, when, when I got to, he made me promise to do it in his studio. So when I get to Austin, he shows up at the studio and he's got a Martin guitar and a six pack. So he honored the first line of the song and we had, we had a good time working together and reminiscing. And he came up to Nashville. We've hung out some since then and just talked music about a lot of, you know, when Guy Clark died, mm-hmm. I Guy went and spent some time with Guy about a week before he went out, and that was probably the last time I talked to Jerry Jeff, but he, he totally credits Guy for his success, which I think he can, you know. there's To me, it's some of his greatest songs, certainly L.A. Freeway and some of that stuff Guy wrote. You know. Well, speaking about songwriting, I mean, you're, um, I think of you primarily as that. I hope you don't mind. I think of you as a songwriter. No, that's the greatest compliment you could give me. Well, I mean, uh, and around here it's almost like there's something in the water you're talking about you talk about lead belly uh you you talk about hank williams's time here when he really had his career just completely had a second wind and he he made some of his best songs Mm -hmm. while he was living here there's just i do think there's something in the pine trees and the red dirt and the and the catfish or (laughs) Whatever, whatever we're eating and drinking and and seeing on a daily basis it gives birth to some great songs yeah yeah it Again, at that time, the you know I I was caught up in that the Texas mentality of you don't even want it to be a hit. You know you want to write a great song, you want to write a story, but generally those songs don't have catchy choruses and stuff like that. You know you just you want to move people. The last words that Guy Clark told me when I'm sitting there shaking his hand and he just didn't want to let go and we're just staring at each other knowing you know it was the end and he finally just kind of nodded his head and he said well go break a heart you know but just songwriter cool to the end and that's that's what i was trying to do just write songs that mattered and i didn't care about a hit and most of the nashville songs i was hearing really didn't move me you know, like some of the Haggard stuff, you know, and there's an occasional song I'd hear coming out of those truck drivers' trucks, and I go, man, that's pretty cool. But, man, those records don't sound very good. That, <laughs> they don't sound like the Eagles to me or Allman Brothers or the stuff that was really kicking my butt, you know. That, that doesn't sound like Leon Russell music, you know, or even 
the the Texas guys, they were rocking that stuff a little bit, and Nashville wasn't. You know, they were putting a lot of strings on stuff at the time and whatever. It just didn't sound cool to me. But I had been to military school in high school, and my roommate uh, invited me. He was running Charlie Daniels Publishing Company. And Charlie was cool. You know, he was on my cool list. Yeah. And uh, so, I, I, he, you know, I, I went to New Orleans. I played, I think my last run was like 72 nights in a row down there. Oh, my God. Yeah, and I was I was burned. I was playing five nights a week at the old Absinthe House. At the end, I was playing from 9 at night till 6 o'clock in the morning. I was 45 on and 15 off, and I was just worn out. Anyway, I called my friend Jody. I said, you really think I could make a living writing songs? Because he'd been trying to get me to come up there. He said, man, get your butt up here. And that's when I when I, I spent about six months passing all what I thought was my cool stuff around and, you know, getting nowhere. People, you know, saying, nodding their heads. And then the next time I would call, they were always out to lunch or whatever, you know, learned a valuable lesson. If you ever get a shot, you better make it a good one, you know. It's a, I've always heard it's just an incredibly hard town. It's a, that, it, that it can have a mental effect on you when the greatest guitar player you've ever met in your life is delivering food for a living or, you yeah. know, I mean, it's just like. Well, I thought I was a good guitar player till you know, I went to my first demo session to cut one of my songs, and everybody in there could play better than me. I mean, I studied guitar at two different colleges, and these guys are running circles around me. I'm like, okay, you guys play. I'll try and sing, <laughs> because most guys are singing circles around me, too. You know, it's the level of talent there is just ridiculous. And I have to watch myself when I'm in, trying to encourage young people with their dream because all I can say is you have to understand how freaking good these people are I mean everybody up there that's making a living at it is at the top of their game and they are really really good at it and that's when I realized as a songwriter if I was going to make a living at it I needed to learn what you know the craft and the people I really loved, Roger Miller and Chris Christopherson and Guy Clark and Towns Van Zandt, they were all in Nashville. And they thought writing a hit was cool. You know, and I'm like, cool enough for you. I mean, first, when I finally got to meet Guy, I was a nervous wreck because I was such a fan of his. But, man, he I mean, he's like, we got to write a hit, pal. I'm like... Okay, I thought we were just going to try and write something cool. He goes, you know, you got to do both, but it's got to matter. I mean, he always said being a star was easy. He said, if you want to be a star, he goes, that's easy. All you got to do is just do what they tell you to. He goes, if you want to be an artist, you got to think about it. You got to do something good, and you really got to pay attention to what you're doing. And it was that's great advice, you know. Beyond that, you just got to dig in, work, and... No matter what they tell you, you got to believe in yourself, you know. That's really great <laughs> advice. I'm dying to know, uh, when you were living in Shreveport and coming up, did you ever go to any shows at the Municipal? No. No, that's not true. That's absolutely not true. <laughs> I was about to say no because I thought, it, I think of Hirsch as a place we always went for big shows, and I went to a lot of shows there. Oh, yeah. I saw Steely Dan there. I wow. saw Steely Dan. I saw, and uh, gosh, um uh, Edwin Birdsong, who probably means nothing to you. I think he might have had one record and one almost hit. Um, 
And I'm trying to think of songs. I saw a handful of shows there, but I do remember Steely Dan uh, when they were kind of in, in reeling in the years when they were oh, just wow. first taking off. Yeah. Where were, so this is catnip for our Shreveport people. Yeah. Yeah. Where were your spots? Did you have, do you have places that you got to go when you come to town or? Oh, well, um, Herbie case is number one. Um, uh, you know, if, if I'm uh, getting a Muffy, I go to Fertitta's. Um, Ernest and my uh, Ernest Senior and my father were dear friends. There was a Red Snapper Brooks on the menu. Barbara and I had our <laughs> rehearsal dinner at the Ernest downtown here, um, and I still I won't leave town without going by and seeing Ernest and uh, at least visiting with him. We love talking about our dads, you know, and they were they were such great friends. And still, I put his crab claws up against anything, and I'll put a shrimp buster up against anything. My absolute favorite anything i told my wife she goes what are you doing tomorrow i said well we could head over to monroe we're meeting some friends we have a family farm you know south of monroe down there where we're ultimately headed on this trip but i said man i might just i got some friends with some guns let's go to the gun club she likes to shoot too and uh because i gotta stay long enough to get a shrimp buster before i get out of here you know um, before we wrap up, I'd love to just talk a little bit more about the Hayride. Do you find yourself listening to recordings from the Hayride? And, and if you do, are there any particular ones that stand out for you as a songwriter that kind of touch you and inspire you? You know, over the years, um, I have. And, I mean, there's a lot of iconic stuff there. KWKH was um, kind of one of the one of the places before I had really had anything going. I'd just gone to Nashville and whatever, but it was a place where I could go bang on the door until they let me in and I'd, you know, make up whatever minor thing that I had done or met in Nashville, you know, and, and there were several jocks that would let me hang around the studio. And uh, so there, there was a great legacy there. And I, you know, I can't put my finger on a performance, honestly. It's, but I can remember quite a few my, one of my bass player Danny Milliner who's actually from Pineville um, we we've played together forever he was actually playing over here in a, in a basement with a just singing with a great horn band and one night I caught him playing bass I went man that guy can really play so when I had my first solo deal on Capitol uh, I rounded him up and Hassel Tickle who's a, a local piano player and whatever friend of mine his big brother and I were, had been roommates over at Tech and we we put us a band together and they all moved to Nashville and and we danced on it for a minute nothing big happened but um actually cut a song of mine sacred ground that wound up being a number one record for for McBride and the Rod but we stirred it up a little bit but Danny had been at the Hayrod so he had a ton of great stories even then you know it was still going in the mm-hmm. 80s, a lot of people think, you know, it was dead in the 60s, mm-hmm. but, you know, it was kind of revived. There's a lot of people around here. Maggie Warwick obviously dedicated her life to keeping that legacy alive. We and, spent a lot of time talking about her today. Oh, yeah. She's she's easy to talk about. She was so much fun and and, and so inspiring. You know, it's, it's easy to, you know, get above your raisin and have some success in Nashville. And it's like, gosh, the hayride's not doing anything, but... And when you see it, you come back home and you see a passion from somebody like her and the people that still care about the legacy, what happened here, it, you know, it just, it makes me want to come back and sit down with you guys and talk about it. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's important to, to where we come from, um, all the great music that came out of here. 
you know, a lot of people that uh, that inspired me to do what I do, and you just mm, don't be forgetting that stuff. You know, there's there's a lot of heart and soul there that should be a part of of what you're doing. Uh, the other day, uh, I say the other day, a couple of years ago, I listened to New New in this town, New to this town. Oh, cool! And it knocked my socks off. Mm-hmm. How good it was. And I hope you don't take that the wrong way. No. It was like. Why the, would I? Well, the title track, <laughs> I should expect you to be good. But the, the title track in particular, I think, is just such an example of the songwriting craft and how, I mean, I think me and my mom both like kind of teared up listening to it. And mm. she was like, it's amazing how good he still is. <laughs> how do you stay? Like, I think sometimes, I know this is probably not the healthy way to think about art. But Sarah and I both write a lot, and I think of it sometimes as a reservoir that is running down on me. You know, like if you just push and you push, then that little reservoir is going down. Mm-hmm. And some folks like you, I meet, and it just doesn't seem like the reservoir is running down. How do you keep it full of create? Like, how do you stay on top of your game? It does. I don't know. It's uh, and it, it does run down. Everybody, everybody struggles with that. When you write, I've got I don't know over a couple of thousand songs recorded at Sony Publishing now that I've actually demoed. You know and. And people go, man, you need to go back through those. I go, no, I don't. All the good ones got cut. And there's 1,800 <laughs> songs that just aren't that good, you know? They're, okay. you know, your friends, your family here, man, I love that thing. It's, you know, that's a hit. No, it's not. You know, after you, know after you write two or 3,000 songs and you've been banging on doors for that long and played them for that many people, sometimes you really get, you know, you don't write that many that you're, your heart and soul is really into it and you go this this is a freaking hit sometimes i do that and you know that song i was talking about the dirt band cut i played that for everybody at the time alabama and randy travis they're all like man i just don't get this thing you know you just played it for the dirt band they're like where's this band i go all over freaking town if y'all cut it you're an idiot because everybody tells me it's not a hit you know and had a big old number one record with it. So I really feel like, you know, to me, there's two kinds of songwriting. There's perspiration and there's inspiration. And you got to do them both. And some days you stare at that white piece of paper or that computer screen and you, and you got a guitar in your lap and you go, ah, I got nothing. I got nothing. And that's when you just do something. You know, my son's a screenwriter out in Los Angeles, and he was struggling with some block the other day. And I said, just get to the end and then come back and pick at it. But I can't tell you how many times. I remember I was writing with a guy, Chris Waters, one day. We were writing a song that was so mediocre. We both know it, but we're just pounding through doing the craft, you know, just, we're just going to get to the end. And one of the lines I threw out, and, and you made a rock of a rolling stone, was just a line, and it goes, ooh, and just like, throw that that other thing away, and here we go, you know, and had a hit on the oaks with it. But that's where perspiration will pay off for you, because some days you think you got nothing, and, there's, and something will pop up. You know, you can surprise yourself. I think it, as a songwriter, some days you just got to do the work. And some days you just throw it in the trash. And, you know, I can't tell you that lunch is like it for songwriters. We all co-write in Nashville all the time. And, man, we call it, you know, mouth breathing. But some days you're just, you're like, what about? And you, we're all just <laughs> sitting there going, just trying to think of something. It's like, God. 
what time is it? It's only 10.30. We're still a good hour from calling lunch, you know? Because lunch is sometimes stuff will happen, you know? But, man, those mornings can be tough when you with three people with nothing. Because when you're writing songs for a living, you've already written all that stuff you had in a pad. But, you know, last night, it's funny, I was showing Barbara on the airplane coming over here today. I said, Look at this, and it was so weird written. I said, I wrote this in the complete darkness because I didn't want to wake you <laughs> up. But I had three great lines, you know, and, and you know, I, I can still, at least I can still read it. I knew the next, you know, this morning I'd be able to know what it was, and it was still pretty good. That's not always the case, but you always got to try, I think. If I think of something in the middle of the night, I either get up or I'll just write it in the dark. <laughs> I'm going to put a notepad by the bed when I get home. Oh, you yeah. got to do that. Well, thank you, and yes. congratulations. I mean, you're a source of pride for so many of us locals. Um, oh, thanks. You've got your upcoming induction, I think, into the Country Music Hall of Fame, which is pretty Congratulations. Huge. Thank Amazing. you. Amazing. That's so pretty proud. crazy. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, it's just an honor to be able to share some time with you, and I hope one of these days uh, that we'll have a big, beautiful museum about music in North Louisiana, and we can get you to get in that museum, too. That's so weird that we don't. Mm-hmm. It is. You know, I was talking to Ronnie the other day because he had just gotten back from the Texas uh, Music Hall of Fame, and um, and Oklahoma's got a real cool. I'm like, good God Almighty! Yeah. I mean, between Shreveport and New Orleans, I mean, and Faraday. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yes. I, I just can't imagine that there hasn't been at least a state-sponsored something in the Capitol building or something. Start a space. And and go to work, and I know, you know, someone's put together a you know a hall of fame, which which they put me in, but um, and that's cool. But where is it? You know, <laughs> I mean, it's got to be more than just you know a pamphlet somewhere. Yes, yes. There's and I'm and like everybody else, I'm sure would be happy to give artifacts and whatever like that. But man, we've got a got a huge legacy here, not to have. Not to have some kind of place. I feel like there's a groundswell happening, and and hopefully, uh, I think we're on the cusp of having something here. It's been exciting, just the local chatter and people kind of scheming and planning and figuring out how to make it happen. Well, I'd be happy to do my part. So let me know if it gets any further down the road. That was Kix Brooks, better known as one half of the wildly successful country duo Brooks and Dunn. Shortly after this interview took place, Brooks and Dunn were inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame. We had a great time talking with Kicks, and we want to reiterate how thankful we are to Louisiana Public Broadcasting for making that happen. For the next installment in our series on the Louisiana Hayride, we'll talk with Mr. Alton Warwick. Many Shreveporters know Alton as husband and business partner to the late Maggie Warwick. Together, Alton and Maggie spent decades promoting the Louisiana Hayride. If you love this kind of local history, you should also go back and check out the episodes with Dr. Tracy Laird, Robert Gentry, and Joey Kent. If you haven't given those a listen yet, they're wonderful. If you're not already subscribed to the All Y'all Podcast, please go ahead and hit that subscribe button in your podcast app or follow us on Spotify. We're also on Twitter at All Y'all Podcast, and you can like our page on Facebook. If you type in All Y'all, we're just the little orange circle that pops up when you search for the words All Y'all. And we'd love to hear from you, particularly on our Facebook page. If you've got a Louisiana Hayride story of your own, or you'd like to share your thoughts on where the Hayride fits into Shreveport's past, present, and future, move it on over and leave a comment on our post about this episode. Thanks again for listening, and thanks to Louisiana Public Broadcasting for making this series of episodes possible. 
Thank you to AJ Haynes for our Slim Whitman-inspired theme music and Alexander Holman for mixing those lovely tunes. AJ Haynes' participation is courtesy of New West Records. And to our all y'all sponsors, Maryland's Place, Maxcentric, and Rhino Coffee, you're our dream Louisiana Hayride lineup. Thanks, y'all. 